from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Scripture lesson this morning is Psalm 8. Listen for God's word. O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have founded a bulwark because of our foes to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, what are human beings that you are mindful of them, mortals that you care for them? Yet you have made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You have given them dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under their feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Second scripture is from Genesis chapter 1, verses 24 through 31, page 1 in the Old Testament portion of your pew Bible, if you'd like to follow along as I read aloud. Continue to listen to God's word to you and to me. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind, cattle and creeping things and wild animals of the earth of every kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals of the earth of every kind and the cattle of every kind and everything that creeps upon the ground of every kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make humankind in our own image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in God's image. In the image of God, God created them, male and female, God created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and, and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, see, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the air and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that God had made and indeed it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Friends, this too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open your word afresh to us this day. 
so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space this morning, even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Here's something I've been thinking a lot about this summer. I believe that the more we comprehend and understand our own humanity, the more we're able to recognize and understand the humanity of other people. And when that happens, when we begin to understand and recognize our own humanity, and when we begin to understand and recognize the humanity of other people, when that happens, then the closer we come to receiving and creating a life and a world that is less fearful, more just, more decent and kind, more safe and more authentic than the life and the world so many of us are creating and inheriting right now. So as I've been thinking a lot this summer about how I recognize my own humanity and how I see and recognize and understand the humanity of someone else, I, I frame it all under a big monumental question. What does it mean to be a human being? Because if we're going to try to recognize something, we ought to know what it is. So if I'm trying to recognize your humanity and you're trying to recognize my humanity and I'm trying to recognize my own humanity, what is it that I'm looking for? What constitutes the essence of being human? Well, if you're a Christian, you know that this question, what does it mean to be a human being, is not untethered or disconnected from the deep and profound and mysterious character of God. When a Christian asks this question, they, they, they turn to God in prayer. They turn to God's word in the scripture. When the Christian asks this question, what does it mean to be a human being? We turn to texts like Psalm 8, the one Rebecca read for us this morning. And we are reminded that human beings are made a little lower than God. And that, and that human beings have been crowned with glory and honor. When a Christian asks this question, what does it what does it mean to be a human being? They, they turn to the book of Genesis, the text that I read for us this morning, and they remember, as it says, God created humanity in God's own image. Theologians will insist that, that, that any inquiry, any question into the essence of what it means to be a human being, any inquiry we have into such matters, it must begin with this truth. It must begin with this truth that we are created in the image of God. That we're created in the image of God. That phrase gets thrown around a lot in churches and the theological academy, we're created in the image of God, but what exactly does that mean? My father-in-law, Jonathan, tells a story of a time from a few years ago when he was visiting his then 92-year-old mother uh, once her first great-grandchild was born, our son, Jonathan, uh, people started calling her, people in the family started calling her Gigi. And, and Gigi was in assisted living at this time, and dementia had set in. 
she frequently didn't recognize anyone anymore as they would come to visit. And for those who have loved a family member, who have loved a friend through dementia or through Alzheimer's disease, you know that those encounters can be equal parts heartbreaking, comical, and tender. So Jonathan came into his mother's room with, with flowers and with a my, wide smile, and he said, hello, mom, and he, he kissed her on the cheek, and he sat down next to her. She looked at him, revealing that she had no idea who he was, and so she asked, sir, are we related? Jonathan held her hand and said, yes, mom, I'm your son. She smiled, and for the rest of their time together, about every 10 minutes or so, Gigi would look at John, and she would giggle, and she would say, we're related, and I love you. We're related, and I love you. We're related, and I love you. She kept saying it over and over throughout the visit, perhaps confused, but trusting it in that moment, trusting it nonetheless, trusting it as if it was true. We're starting a sermon series today, and ground zero of this series is that human beings are created in the image of God. And my hope throughout this Series throughout the next few months. It's going to be an 11 week sermon series. And I know that sounds like a long sermon series, but I've been on sabbatical. <laughs> Over the next two months, I hope that we all collectively as a community and as individuals will discover the joy and the mystery and the invitation that this claim makes on our lives, makes on your life, and makes on my life that we bear the image of God. And what the image of God means in, in some ways is that we are related to God, that we're related to God, and that we're loved by God. And I hope and I pray that we can discover joy in that, that it makes us laugh, that it gives us hope, that it gives us faith. I'm inviting us to trust this truth at the outset of this series, even if it seems confusing, even if it's hard to comprehend, even if it's difficult to understand, even if it's clouded by mystery, that this truth still prevails, that you and I are created in the image of God. And that means that we're related to God and that God loves us. Part of what it also means I think to bear God's image is to recognize that we're endowed with uh, certain qualities and characteristics that God, I think, I believe, possesses for all eternity. Here's what I mean. We're endowed, right, with an intellect. We're endowed with a mind. And I believe that intellect and that mind corresponds with the divine wisdom God possesses in fullness and for all eternity. 
We could also talk about our capacity to create, right? Human beings can and do create beauty in the world. We create utility in the world. And I believe that mirrors and that reflects the supreme creativity of God. We could talk about, as Genesis 1 does, our call to steward that which God has created, to steward the earth, and how that stewardship ought to reflect the stewardship that God has for everything that God has created and called good. So there's a lot of qualities and characteristics in the human being that reflect the image of God and then reflect the fullness of God's character for all eternity. But there's one quality and characteristic in particular that's sort of going to pave the way for the rest of this sermon series, and that is the endowed capacity that God has given us to desire. The capacity to desire. Part of what it means to be a human being is that we possess the capacity to desire. Here, here's something that we know through prayer. Here's something that we know through scripture. Here's something that we know through the tradition of the church. We affirm that God has a will. We affirm that God has intention, that God has desire. And then we look at the human being and we say, yes, the human being also has desire. The human being also has a will. The human being has been endowed with the capacity to have passion, to want things, to long for things, to have desire. And just as God has created us with the capacity to think how God thinks, the capacity to create how God creates, the capacity to steward the way God stewards, I firmly believe that God has given us the capacity, the ability to desire what God desires. I believe the human being is capable of wanting what God actually wants. I believe God etched those desires in our humanity. I believe he etched those desires in our minds and our hearts and our guts. I believe that's part of what it means to be a human being, that we are endowed with the capacity to desire. Not only that, the capacity to desire what God desires. Shifting gears just a little bit here, I want to say something about uh, the Enneagram to set up my next point. The, the, the Enneagram is something that some of you are familiar with. It's an ancient spiritual tool that helps us understand divine motivation, or, or rather human motivation. It helps us understand human uh, desire. One of our pastors, Jamie Butcher, is a facilitator with this tool, and she's worked with our larger staff around it. In fact, she's done some Sunday school classes uh, and some small groups using the Enneagram as well, and I trust that some of you have known it outside of this place. But one of the things that I've appreciated as I've reread some of the work around this ancient tool, one of the things I've really come to appreciate about this spiritual resource is the way in which it distills human motivation, the way it helps us understand human desire. In fact, uh, the Enneagram says there are at least nine principal desires that human beings have. Nine principal desires. Those desires are these. These are desires that God has etched in our hearts and our minds and our guts. The desire to be loved, the desire to be valuable, to be authentic, to be competent, to be secure, to be happy, to be self-sufficient, to be at peace, and to do good. The Enneagram lists these nine motivations 
that human beings experience as core to what it means to be a human being. And in this sermon series, week by week, what we're going to do is we're gonna take each one of these. We're gonna look individually at each one of these desires and name them as gifts that God has given us and explore them through the scriptures so that we can have a better sense in how to answer that question, what does it mean to be human, that we'll begin to see these desires as essential to what it means to be human, to see them in ourselves and then to see them in other people. But we're not just going to leave it there because week by week, we're going to see how these desires can become so badly distorted. We're going to see how these desires can be disfigured by our anger and by our shame and by our fear. Let me use an illustration here. The Marvel Universe, you know the Marvel comics, the movies, you know all these? Right? The Marvel Universe, uh, that's been a big hit in our home over the last several years, especially with the release of Endgame this past spring. We participated financially in helping that film gross $3 billion. Okay, if you have no idea what I'm talking about and anything that grosses $3 billion, you should just Google it. Just check it out, okay? But one of the backstories, or one of the main stories actually in the Marvel Universe is around the antagonist named Thanos. And in, and in the movie called Infinity War, which is the one just released prior to the one that was released in the spring, this antagonist Thanos, this really bad guy, has devised a plan to destroy half the population of the universe. Because in his estimation, there aren't enough resources to go around for the universe to sustain itself. He has a fear that one day the universe is going to collapse on itself, you use up all the resources, and the universe will be no more. So the movie doesn't spend a lot of time on this because he's a bad dude, but his actual desire that gets him going on this plan is good. He actually wants the universe to be sustained. He wants the universe to carry on. But once he has this desire, it becomes so badly malformed that once he possesses the power to do it, he snaps his finger, fingers and half the population is gone. Spoiler alert, they all come back in endgame. It's okay. So Luke, our 11-year-old, and I were having a philosophical conversation about the Marvel Universe the other day. And Luke said, Dad, you know what I don't get? If Thanos wanted to preserve the universe, he shouldn't have destroyed half of it, right? If he had the power to destroy half the population, wouldn't he have the power to double the universe's resources and save everybody? Why wouldn't he just snap his fingers and create what the universe needs instead of destroying half of it. Luke's insight was pretty profound to me. This insight about a fictitious character because I think it holds true for real characters like us. Because inherent in our humanity is the capacity to desire something good. We have the capacity to desire something that brings value into the world. We have the capacity to will the things God wills in real time. And yet because of fear or because of anger or because of shame, our desires become distorted. And when our desires become distorted, when our desires don't match the desires of God, 
bad stuff happens. Perhaps one possesses a noble desire for their nation or their country, their their community to thrive. Maybe they have that noble desire that they want their land to do well, but then that desire can become so manipulated and so malformed by the rhetoric of politicians and preachers or family members or just a general sense of self-centeredness that it can lead to fundamentalism, racism, xenophobia, and even physical violence. Perhaps somebody has the noble desire to provide for their family. Many of us know what that feels like, right? We have this noble desire to provide for our family. And yet that desire can become so manipulated and distorted by a scarcity mentality that I'm not enough, that I don't have enough, that one would even begin to cut corners and one would be even, even begin to cheat and lie and steal for one more dollar in the house that they're trying to build to keep them safe. Perhaps one possesses a noble desire to be loved, and yet they keep putting themselves in these toxic relationships, abusive relationships even, because they're so afraid of being alone. Perhaps one possesses the noble desire to be free from pain. It is good to be free from all sorts of pain, and yet they'll numb themselves with destructive habits and addictions that obliterate their soul. See, this is how sin works. Sin is simply distorted and malformed desire enacted in the world. Let me close with this story. I I was in the Holy Land, as many of you know, in May. And among the many sites that one visits when they're doing this kind of tour, uh, you show up, you go to the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem in the West Bank. Originally, the church was commissioned by Constantine as a gift for his mother in the fourth century, and inside of its walls, they claim, is the actual birthplace of Jesus, that you can go in and see it and touch it. And so naturally, pilgrims from around the globe, they they, they come to the church in the nativity to see this site, and some days, all those pilgrims show up at the same time, like on the day we were visiting. So we were with a group of 40 Presbyterian ministers. Our bus pulled in, and then right behind us was a bus full of Greek Orthodox, and then behind them was a bus filled with Roman Catholics. And it was sort of all simultaneous. The doors all opened, and everybody just started rushing out, heading toward the entry point of the Church of the Nativity. And literally, we were pushing. We were shoving to get in line. There were words exchanged in Arabic by our tour guides. Uh, Many in our group, including me, uh, became sarcastic, even irreverent. I don't know about you, but this is sort of an old theory, you know, a moral person, immoral society, right? As we were all descending into the depths, I found myself being irreverent, telling jokes, being sarcastic in this sacred space. Uh, Priests from different denominations were arguing about who should go first in languages I didn't understand. In fact, I've heard that, that fistfights have literally, literally broken out in the Church of the Nativity as at least five different traditions are, are called to share that sacred space, right? In all of it, here's what I'm trying to paint a picture of. In all of it, it did not feel like we were visiting the meek and mild Jesus' birthplace. It felt like we were in traffic on I-75. It felt like we were at Harry Potter World on a Saturday in July. Some of you parents know what I'm talking about. 
It felt hot and crowded and touristy. And really the truth of it, it was profane. And for me, the worst of it came as I was next in line uh, to kneel down and to touch the spot where it's claimed that Mary gave birth to Jesus. And as I stepped forward, there was a man there sort of keeping watch uh, there for crowd control. And he, he looked at me and he said to me in English, make it quick, don't be too long. There are a lot of people waiting behind you. So I, I began to kneel in and literally my knee didn't even hit the floor when the man grabbed me by the shoulder and said, time's up, that's it, you've got to move on. He was agitated, I was angry and I got up and I kept going. And then something incredible happened. Eod, our guide for the week, who knew more about the land and the Bible than anybody I've ever met, he went up to this guard and he said something to him in Arabic. I have no idea what he said, no idea. But whatever he said changed this man's disposition. Whatever he said changed his heart. And I could see it. I mean, literally, physically see it. The change come over him. And as the people were coming behind me, he was gracious. He was helping people down. He was being kind. He was being friendly. It was almost as if Eod said, don't lose their humanity. And don't lose why we're here in the first place. Don't lose that. And it was almost as if Eod was saying that right to me and to my heart because I, along with so many other people, had lost it. I was reminded by the way he spoke to him that we were all pilgrims, all human beings trying to, to make our way. And I've thought a lot about that encounter throughout this summer. And I've thought about my own life and I've thought about the life of the world. You know, because there's a, there's a noble desire, right, in the church and the nativity. There's a noble desire to keep that space sacred and holy. There's a noble desire by a pilgrim that comes to experience the holy, to experience something transformational. We show up there because we want to see where love was born. And yet we push and we shove and we draw lines. We become inhospitable. We become irreverent. We turn the sacred desire into something that it's not. And, and here's the truth that I've discovered about me and, and perhaps we could apply it to the world and maybe you want to apply this to your own life. That we're like the church of the nativity. There's something sacred in us. The image of God in us. But we turn it into something profane. And watching Eod speak to the man reminded me that we need an intervention, right? We need someone, I need someone to speak into my life to remind me of my own humanity, to remind me of the humanity of the other, to refocus my desire so that my desire may align with the intention of God. And friends, Jesus Christ is that person for us. He speaks to us with kindness and gentleness and he opens our eyes to our own humanity and to the humanity of others. He's the one who helps reform and correct our malformed desires so that we may want the things he wants for our lives and for this world. And so throughout this sermon series, if you're willing, we want to explore the places where God needs to intervene, where God needs to speak to us 
so that our desires would be set right and that human desire would align with divine intention. Let us walk that road together for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the world. Amen.